Captain Kirk. I am of this time period. You are not. You interfere with me, with what I have to do down there. And you'll change history. You'll destroy the Earth. And probably yourselves, too. If what he says is true, Captain, every second we delay him could be dangerous. And if he's lying. This is the most critical period in Earth's history. The planet I'm from wants to help Earth survive. What if it turns out you're an invading alien from the future? A most difficult decision, Captain. Program complete. Enter when ready. This is like 10 minutes into the episode, and I was like, did I... Did I, like, miss something? Am I missing something? Did something happen previously I, that... Like, why are I, we... Why are we back in time? Like, I don't understand. What's... That's just a thing now that they do? Or did oh, I... Yeah. No. Did I miss... Did I miss hard. an episode? No, it's super easy to do that now. You're just like... Yeah. Oh, yeah, so we just... Like, like, this is a mission from Starfleet. We had to go in the past. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Why is all... <laughs> <laughs> You got it. You uh, got it. Right on the head. Risk. Risk is our business. Welcome back to another Re-Trek review, where we talk about Star Trek Weekly, and this week, we're talking about the Season 2 finale of Star Trek The Original Series, Episode 26, entitled Assignment Earth. It originally aired March 29th, 1968. It was a teleplay written by Art Wallace and a story written by Gene Roddenberry and Art Wallace. It was directed by Mark Daniels, who we've heard before. He's done, I think this will be the last time we hear Mark Daniels' name for Star Trek. But he did The Man Trap, Naked Time, Both Menageries, Space Seed, The Doomsday Machine, Mirror Mirror, Private Little War. In this episode. So the synopsis for Assignment Earth is the Enterprise travels back in time to 1968, where the crew encounters the mysterious Gary Seven, who claims to be sent by advanced beams trying to help Earth. So before we move on, let's ask Caleb what did he think of the episode? I don't know. It's a weird episode. Yes. I don't know how it felt. I kind of felt like I had missed something important down the line. 
where they can just now like time travel and that's just a normal thing. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was a little a little strange. Um yeah. yeah, and then just overall, I don't know. I mean it's it's not like a not a horrible episode. Didn't love it. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. It's weird. And when I when we get to trivia, you'll have some context that may help you a little bit. Not gonna change okay. much of anything, but it'll just help. So this is our new section where we do subscriber shout outs and talk about comments left on videos. So our two latest subscribers are Bryce Burchett and just a few hours ago, Richard Eldridge. So thanks for subscribing, guys. Nice. And oh, we have another comment from Captain Alimar. So Captain Alimar said on our, our Ultimate Computer podcast, he said, having the full cast on this episode is a real treat after the last few episodes. Quite a grim That's one true. this time. Yeah. Quite a grim one this time. Many off-screen deaths and a blink-and-you-miss-it red shirt vaporization. Yeah. And he says, keep up the great work, guys. Thank you. So, so he ended up not, not uh, hating... Like uh, the ultimate computer wasn't his his uh, private little war, which ended up being good for us. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's funny. And I never talk about it, but might as well in this area. In our description of the video is our Discord channel, so it's always been there. It's been in the description thing where you anybody watching can click and join a discord channel and have the chance to talk to Caleb and I at random intervals. Um, but uh, I don't know if anybody's ever even knows it's in the description. So it's there. If you want to <laughs> join the community and, and chat. Yeah. I just learned about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's crack into the teaser. Captain's log. Using the light speed breakaway factor, the Enterprise has moved back through time to the 20th century. Using our ship's deflector shields to remain unobserved. Our mission? Historical research. We are monitoring Earth communications to find out how our planet survived desperate problems in the year 1968. After Captain Kirk finishes his log entry, suddenly the Enterprise is rocked and Spock reports that they appear to have been intercepted by someone's transporter beam. Kirk remarks that there were no such devices in the 20th century. Spock maintains that someone is beaming aboard. Spock discovers that the transporter beam originates more than a thousand light years away. Scott finds that difficult to believe, stating that no transporter beam could reach that far, not even in their time. Suddenly, a man in a dark suit holding a black cat appears on the transporter pad. So, you get this captain's log that basically just is like, yep, we went back in time and we did this, these things and we're all set. Yeah. And then, legitimately going forward, every time they go back in time, like any Star Trek thing goes back in time, it's like a process 
Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that this part like isn't a process because they say this breakaway thing and all this blah blah blah. But it's like they don't show it. They just are like, "Yep, they were just here." <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. also like a mission from Starfleet. Yeah. So now it's not just like, "Oh, something happened accidentally," and now we're. It's like, no, Starfleet was like. Hey, so we need you to go to this time period. Yeah. And like they monitor. They also don't like give um real reason why. Like they say historical research, but it's like why would it matter yeah. to them who are like 300 years in the future or something like that? Yeah. Uh, what kind of like historical research are you going to be doing from outer space in a time period where there was nothing happening in outer space? Right, right. Yeah. Other thing that I thought was kind of strange and I didn't really quite understand it is like, why did this intercepting this guy's transporter beam like accidentally like rock the entire enterprise? I don't know. It was kind of strange. It's pretty strong. Yeah, it kind of also looked like the transporter was like on fire in a couple scene shots. Yeah, and then there he is with the cat. Yeah, so here we go, which very clearly had like some human person making the sounds from the cat. Like, okay, cool, cool, that's great. <laughs> The strange man asks Kirk why he was intercepted and who his interceptors are. Kirk identifies himself and tells the man that he is aboard the United Spaceship Enterprise. The man asks what planet they are from, and Kirk says they are from Earth. This, the man refuses to believe, because 20th century technology would not allow for a ship like the Enterprise. But when he notices that Spock is a Vulcan, he realizes the ship is indeed from the future and asks to be beamed down to Earth. As security arrives, the man identifies himself as Gary Seven, calling himself a man from the 20th century, and gives his cat's name as Isis. Kirk states, however, that humans of the 20th century do not go beaming around the universe. Seven explains that he has uh, been on another planet, one much more advanced, and that he was beaming to Earth from that planet when the Enterprise intercepted him. When Kirk asks which planet it is, Seven says that its inhabitants wish their planet to be kept secret and that even in and that even in Kirk's time it will remain unknown. Seven reiterates that he is of this time period and adds that if Kirk does not allow him to do what he needs to do down on Earth, then Kirk will have changed history. But Kirk, unsure that Seven is telling the truth, decides to keep him aboard the ship until he can be determined. However, Seven tries to escape, overpowering the security guards, and he even shrugs off Spock's attempt at a Vulcan neck pinch. Seven is only subdued by a phaser stun from Kirk. Kirk calls Dr. McCoy and asks him to examine the mysterious man in the brig to determine if he is really... to determine if he really is human. Yeah. So the thing I I want I meant to mention when I was reading the other thing was so in like Star Trek Into Darkness, 
after Khan attacks the like meeting um in the like ship thing i forget what he's flying but anyways, he attacks it's like he disappears and yeah. kirk sees kirk sees him transport away and then I, somehow they figure out that he tra- like scotty figures out that he transported to um klingon homeworld and it's like how oh. could he do that it's like that's hundreds and thousands of miles away and then Scotty's like oh well it's a thing called like transwarp transwarp beaming or transdimensional beaming or something like that and they're like oh could we do it and they're like uh maybe but they you know, it's like it's really hard and then you got this scene where Scotty's like you can't do that and it's supposed to be yeah. like a couple years after this era <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like <laughs> just always yeah. makes me laugh. Yeah, they pay they play pretty hard and loose with the Yeah. Mechanical rules, you know. I think the only thing that was really funny in this stretch was you know, you always have to have that moment where he's like the, the person's always like, okay, all right, yeah. <laughs> they quickly run around to like attack him and they he's yeah. attacking the guys and then the cat jumps on the security guard and the security guard's like oh my god <laughs> just in his face like no not a black cat on me <laughs> <laughs> well in their time period cats cats have been extinct yeah that's yeah <laughs> so <laughs> they, don't, they don't know what the, what it is Mm-mm. yeah yeah. It is kind of true that you say that now. I don't think you, I don't think you intended it to be the way it is, but now it makes me wonder if that's true. Oh, I'm sure. Only because of what comes soon afterwards. But um, <laughs> I also thought it was really funny that wouldn't you think, like Kirk calling from the transporter to to McCoy, and he's like, "Hey, can you come?" And then he's like. And you hear like, <clears throat> and he's like, "What's happening? What's happening?" Yeah, you would just be like, "Why don't you just come to the transporter room, Doctor?" Like, clearly something bad. <laughs> well, I need to know what you know, syringe packs and stuff to bring. Oh, that's that's very true. Very very true. Yeah, yeah. Oh boy, do I need that's to simulate good. death? Or do I have to, you know, postpone Mugatu yeah. bites? Is that Mugatu. what these are? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you never know. You know, you gotta you gotta pack for the occasion. Sure. That's very true. So yeah. That was the the other thing of this episode that I was mm. like, I was like, man, so they basically they basically did Doctor Who before Doctor Who did Doctor Who. I- <laughs> Yeah, this guy is very clearly like he's Doctor Who, man. He's got the sonic screwdriver. He's got... Yeah, he's so he so badly is. But the funny thing is, is like Doctor Who came out, I think, like, like 40s, two or no, like two or three years before <laughs> this show came out. Oh, was it really? Yeah, that's funny. I think they're in like season 
four or five, probably four when this like aired. Wow. Yeah. I knew Doctor was early, but I didn't know how how early. Yeah, I think like nineteen sixty four, I think, or nineteen sixty three, something like that. Yeah. And they just love it, love it. It's super, super, super like I mean it's very clearly Doctor Who Ray. (laughs) Very much so. His like him walking around, his mannerisms, his you know, yeah being like smart, this alien guy, yeah. Well, Seb Seb's dead at. <laughs> Seb Seb's dead at. Yeah, I think I think yeah, you're you're getting closer and closer to to finding out. Let's continue on. What Captain, really happened? Yeah, what really was happening with this episode? Ah. Captain's log supplemental: A man in a 20th century business suit. What is he? Not even Spock's Vulcan neck pinch could stop him. <laughs> Without our oh. phasers, he would have overpowered all five of us. I find it difficult to believe the mysterious Mr. Seven could be human. And yet, suppose he is. Mm-hmm. In the briefing room, Spock, who is stroking Isis, mentions that he finds himself strangely drawn to the cat. Ensign Chekhov reports that analyzing the direction Seven's transporter beam came from show no inhabitable planets in that area of the galaxy. And Scott says that they will not be able to analyze the transporter beam as it had fused their recording circuits. The beam could have brought him across tremendous distances from space and perhaps even through time. There is, quite simply, no way to know. Spock also mentions that current crises on Earth could fill a tape bank, noting that on this one day alone, there will be an important assassination today, an equally dangerous government coup in, a- in Asia, and this could be highly critical, the launching of an orbital nuclear warhead platform by the United States, countering a similar launch by other powers. Kirk and Spock briefly discussed the nuclear arms race and how, the, and how that once the sky was filled with orbiting H-bombs, the slightest mistake could have brought one down, setting off a nuclear holocaust. The reason I was laughing when you were like, I don't know what cats are. It's like the way Spock is petting the cat. He's like, they're almost like, I don't know what this thing is, and I'm, but I'm yeah. weirdly drawn to it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just like the tribbles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but I, the thing I did like about this scene was I really enjoyed Kirk sitting at the table and looking at the monitor and then like having various members yep. of his ship like I like, reporting, like all of the stuff back to him. Yeah, I like yeah. that too. It was also really cool uh to see like how the monitor worked because you always mm-hmm. wonder like why is it shaped like that? Yeah. And so like the captain in the chair can see the monitor, but anybody else at the table can see the other side of the monitor. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. I like that. I thought that was cool. But yeah. Like you said, seeing the like Scotty in the engine room talking and right, it was cool. Yeah, it really was. It actually oh, made it feel like other other people on the ship like do things other than Kirk just walking into the room and then him being like, "Well, did you try to do this thing?" You know, like like Kirk is the guy who walks around and does all the stuff. I like that. 
it felt like yeah. he was having people like do their jobs. Yeah, and as like the captain, you're not just gonna walk around the ship, you know. Mm-hmm. You're gonna call down to a lot of stations and right. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was I thought that was cool. Yeah. So this little quote part that I read that Spock talks about, that's the that's also the interesting thing to remember mm-hmm. about the assassination and the coup in Asia and the nuclear warhead platform. The coup and the coup poop. <laughs> Seven soon escapes from the brig using a device called a servo. Disguised as a pen to deactivate the force field and put the guard to sleep. Sort of. Back in the briefing room, McCoy tells Kirk that Seven is indeed human, but also that he is a totally perfect body without a physical flaw at all within him. This raises the possibility that he could be an alien taking human form, and Spock points out again that Seven could be telling the truth. Kirk laments that neither of them is telling anything definite. At that point, Isis jumps off, jumps out of Kirk's... No. At that point, Isis jumps out of Spock's lap and leaves the briefing room. Security then alerts them that Seven has escaped. In the transporter room, where Isis rejoins him, Seven renders Lemley and Leslie unconscious with his servo and beams down before Kirk can stop him. <laughs> like how they give those guys names. Yeah. I think Leslie, Leslie's like always in the background, and I actually met him, which was really funny. Did you? When I went to um, London, he was like one of the guys sitting there, and I just went up and got his thing because he was like an older guy, and he was like super, super like excited to like interact with fans. So I, th- I so that's kind of why I went over and talked to him. Cool. So he's like he's always been like this background stand-in guy. He's in a lot of he's almost in like I don't know, he's in tons of episodes. Hmm. You just don't really think about it because he's in he's just in the background. Yeah. He's always the security guy. Yeah. Uh no, I don't think so. I think he plays various things. Oh, okay. That's fun. So it's the naked time where Sulu's taking Ohura oh, and yeah. he's sitting at the it's him sitting at the council. That's funny. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, take a nap on this episode. He sure did. I don't really understand what that thing was doing. Um <laughs> I assumed it worked like the uh men in black thing. Because he, he does it to, he's like, and then the guy's like, mm, mm, oh, mm. and then he comes out of the room and he's like, you're so tired, just go to sleep. And he's like, oh, yeah. And he's like, lays down. And I'm like, why does making him, because he does it to all of them. He does it like when you, when they come into yeah. the room, Leslie and Lemley are like, have huge smiles on their face and they're like sleeping. Yeah, and then the guard in in uh, Cape Canaveral, or wherever they're at the McKinley yeah. base, he's got a huge smile. He's like smiling. Yeah. I'm like, what is this yeah. thing doing? But he he livens right up when Kirk and Spock come down there. 
Oh yeah. Immediately. That's because it's been like five minutes. Yeah. Seven materializes inside a transporter chamber disguised as a vault concealed behind a sliding rack of drinking glasses in what appears to be an otherwise normal office. Seven accesses a computer behind the bookcase. Seven asks the locations of agents 201 and 347. The computer asks Seven to identify himself, and Seven tells the computer to check his voice pattern, and it will identify him as Supervisor 194, codename Gary Seven. The computer recognizes his voice pattern, but is unaware of a Gary Seven being assigned to this planet. Seven then tells the computer that he is a Class 1 supervisor and that the computer is to override all previous instructions and answer his questions. The computer identifies itself as a Beta 5 computer capable of of analytical decision and forces Seven to prove himself by describing the mission of the two agents that were sent here. Finally, Seven, after griping that he has little love for Beta 5 snobbery, relents that relents and tells the computer that missing agents 201 and 347 are a male and female descendant, respectively, of humans taken from the Earth approximately 6,000 years ago, around 4,000 B.C., and that they were specifically engineered and trained for this mission. The problem is that on Earth, its science and technology have progressed faster than its political and social knowledge have. Their mission is to prevent Earth from destroying itself before it can become a peaceful society. The computer states that Seven's information, while incomplete, will suffice and tells Seven that the agents have not reported for three days. Seven tells the computer to immediately begin a search and begins describing how to do so when the computer tells him it is aware of proper search procedures. And then that music plays from like the Brady Bunch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> Get it? It's so, funny. So him coming out of the transporter chamber was very much like Get Smart. Where it's like, you know, he beams into this thing with this like blue cloud. He walks out, the vault opens. It's like the vault closes, then the things close. And it's just like, why does it need so many doors? Yeah, lots of things are happening. Again, it was very like Doctor Who, where he's like coming out of this like safe with all this blue lighting. True. That's like that was his Tardust, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Like how he just appears places like with his cat. (laughs) <laughs> yeah oh yeah soon afterwards yeah i know yeah this is the only thing that i feel like doesn't help gene roddenberry's like vision huh. is like yeah so my argument is humanity gets really terrible like very very bad and they end up having world war three and then eventually they realize like Perhaps this is we're going about this all wrong. They develop warp travel. They do their warp test. Vulcan, Vulcan see it. And then they're like, cool, welcome to the intergalactic family. And then humanity like changes. That's like the, the thought of how Star Trek like is different from our real world. But yeah. this makes it seem like to me it takes kind of the specialness out of it it's like 
they don't talk about like a temporal cold war where these guys are like trying to keep uh, the future of humanity on the same track. It's more of like some sort of beings took humans from the past, transplanted them onto another planet that's like secret, trains these people, and then sends them back to Earth to make sure that this stays on track. And it's like, to me, it makes it seem like the only reason humanity stays on this, like, makes this great social movement and, like, you know, they're not racist and they're not greedy and they're not sexist anymore. It's like... They were forced into it by It's like, yeah, it's because other beings, like, forced the hand. Because other beings wanted them to become perfect like them. Right. Yeah. And it's like, uh, I don't think... I don't think he imagined that that was what that would really mean for what he was like setting up. That also means that this alien society, whatever they are, that they know that what the future of earth is. Right. Exactly. Cause they knew that they had to go prevent that specific thing that day. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's like, they know all of earth's history. So wouldn't they have known that the enterprise would have been there? You would think so. That's the thing about time travel. Like it gets a little, little gray. It always gets areas. messy. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh no, we knew like this was gonna happen, but it's like it's one of those things where it's like, if the Enterprise wasn't there, would it have been different? Like, obviously, like in the in time, like the Enterprise was supposed to be there because they were assigned, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I don't. Know. It's hard. It's hard. It's a uh, yeah. It's weird. It is. I don't know. Just a. It's strange. Yeah. Meanwhile, back on the uh, back aboard the Enterprise, Kirk, Spock, and Scott are trying to determine where Seven had beamed down. Scott says they can get within approximately one thousand meters of where he had gone. Spock reminds Kirk. That following him down is very risky because they may end up accidentally doing something to alter history. Kirk says he knows, but he must also know if Seven is being truthful with them. Kirk tells Scott to have ship stores prepare the proper costumes and then prepare to beat them down. In the apartment, Seven learns that the agency's mission was to disable a rocket that will launch an American orbiting nuclear platform, which is a counter move to an opposing country that has already done the same. This appalls Seven, who says that this arms race is the, kind, is the same kind of nonsense, which almost resulted in the destruction of planet Omicron 4, which the Beta 5 computer confirms. Seven, oh, asks, <laughs> <laughs> Seven asks if the warhead has been disabled, but the computer says both that it has not been and that they and that they are just under 90 minutes before launch. Seven says that unless the agents are immediately located, he will have to undertake their mission in their absence. So again, he he's here, but he doesn't even know what... Yeah, like why they're here. Doing. Right. Like why they're here, what happened to them, like 
what's currently happening. It's like, what was their mission? Like, he doesn't know anything. Yeah, and yeah, because he doesn't even he doesn't even understand like why, like what's going to happen on Earth, right? Because he's like, oh, this is the same thing that happened on this planet. Why are they doing this? Right. And then in the end, he's like, Kirk, if you don't let me finish my mission, World War Three is going to start. It's like, how do you? Yeah, how, like, you don't have do you, any. You don't know that, did, though. Why didn't you mention it earlier? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also, like, all of a sudden, it's like at the end, he's like, now he's fully aware that, like, this is like how World War Three starts. But then it, when he gets on the planet, he has no idea, like, what his mission yeah. even is. Yeah. Oh, totally, totally. It's almost like in in a in not in a good way. It's almost like quantum leap, right? Where like he appears and then he's like, "Why am I here?" He's in a different body, yeah. (laughs) Right, and he's like, "It's like yes, you have to you have to figure out what's happening." You're like, "Oh, oh, interesting." Uh I'm a scientist, (laughs) right? Oh god! The thing that Noah and I used to always laugh about—I mm-hmm. probably remember it too. Remember the old um, Driver, the game, the video game Driver? Oh yeah, there was like Driver one, two, and three. I think it was three, where it was like you were in a coma and you could take control of like other vehicles. Oh to, wow! Like, catch yes. this bad guy. Yeah. So the when the trailer came out, it was like. It was like it showed him like driving, and he was like, "I'm in the ambulance." <laughs> so it was like we just kept oh, quoting no. that. Oh, I do man. remember that. I'm in the ambulance. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a fever dream. That game, like man, it was, was like because we dream. we played like one and two, and we loved it because it was just driving around and doing stuff. And then three was like, "What if we <laughs> took that?" <laughs> and we turned it completely on its yeah. on its head. <laughs> I'm always a big fan too, especially in these older Star Trek things too. Uh, the ship stores, the the quartermaster. Yeah, he's the guy who always gives them the clothes. Yeah, so I always like that. Even in Enterprise, when they go down, like when Flox makes those like ridges on their heads. And they go down to investigate um, why there's like advanced technology in this like Bronze Age civilization. And he makes like the little flocks, makes these little ridges on their heads. But, anyways, they go down and they have like clothes too. And it's like flocks doesn't make those things. He made the, the quartermaster does. Yeah. I know. I just think it's like for us, it's no big deal because it's just like he, they're just wearing 1968 suits. Like, of, they're just wearing suits from there. They're just wearing like a tr- like a rain trench coat, <laughs> right? <laughs> that? But the thing, but the cool thing to think about it in Star Trek canon, it's literally a guy or a girl like pulling fabric and like looking at things and like f- putting their suits together. Like somebody's That's creating funny. those things. Yeah, I just picture the room is like a uh, you know like a play warehouse where it just has just. All types yeah, oh, of yeah. clothes from every century. <laughs> well, you would think it would probably have like multiple fabrics, and then there would be a computer where it's like this is how you make like the tie and make pants and stuff like that. And so then they would just quickly 
yeah make make it but see but they gotta make it in like minutes because like they don't have that much time yeah that's a little that's that's insane i would assume kind of like what you do with your props i would assume that the computer would give them like patterns yeah yeah i'm sure seems like if you were in that department you would just make like two sets of clothes from every time period and then just like have them ready <laughs> for Kirkman's spot. Yeah. Cause you don't get used every week. So you might as well just like bulk up on stuff. <laughs> <laughs> True. Until they scan an alien planet and they're like, they wear these really weird clothes. And you're like, Oh my God. Uh, okay. Perfect. Yeah. Having beamed down, Kirk surreptitiously calls Scott with his communicator and tells him to lead set them lead them to seven scott gives kirk the coordinates and kirk and spock proceed before i move on i just that shot of uh, i think seven looking out the window and he's like looking down and it's like he's trying to see like where what timeline he's in like where what mm-hmm. where in time he is and it's just like yeah. it's just footage of cars of people walking and i couldn't tell if it was like a preset thing like they just filmed like somewhere on a back lot, and these cars are moving by, people are walking. Or did somebody yeah. literally like hang a camera out of like NBC's office and like <laughs> film New York City in nineteen sixty? I couldn't tell. Yeah, probably. They also do that thing where it's like you at first you're not you're like Kirk, you don't really know if he's good or bad. Mm-hmm. And then this scene is supposed to like ground you in the fact that he's bad because he's like, oh look at all these scum and villainy. (laughs) We won't have to be here too long, Mr. Mittens. (laughs) It's like, oh. Uh Oh, no, but he just meant like he was going to fix it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) The computer (laughs) provides Seven with various pieces of false information, including identification listing Seven as a colonel with the CIA, a lieutenant in the NYPD, and a colonel with the NSA. It also produces a map of McKinley Rocket Base. At that moment, a young woman walks in and asks if anyone is in. Seven steps out and demands to know where she has been. The woman sees no reason to tell him and asks who he is. Seven asks where 347 is, but she neither knows nor understands, jokingly replying that perhaps he is with 348. She then threatens to call the police. After insisting that she sit down, Seven, wrongly believing her to be Agent 201, tells her that he is Supervisor 194, codenamed Gary Seven, and that he needs a complete report of all that she has done in the last three days. As the woman prepares to start typing, Seven flips a switch and tells her not to bother with her hands. When she wonders what, how she will type, the typewriter begins typing everything she says. This gets the young woman very frustrated, and after, she yells at the typewriter to stop typing what she says. Seven finally switches it off, and she says that she will quit. Seven then realizes that he, she is not acting. Using his servo, he, he locks the door. He then accesses the computer and has it identify the woman in the room. The Beta 5 identifies her as Roberta Lincoln and says that she is a secretary hired by Agents 347 and 201. Realizing the terrible mistake he has made, Seven asks Roberta what what work her employer said 
they were doing, and she says that they were doing research for a new encyclopedia. Seven tells her she can go, though she will not be helping her country, unless, of course, she does not care for her country. When Roberta protests that she does, Seven tells her that thanks to, to his incompetence, he has made her aware of some top-secret devices vital to the security of the nation. He shows her his false CIA ID, and she accepts that it is legitimate. Isis opens the door and meows at Seven. Seven explains to Roberta that Isis is a trained cat and asks Roberta not to let anyone in, and she agrees to do so. Mm-hmm. The thing I did like was him having all the IDs, and I liked the the map of the base. Like, that was cool. Mm-hmm. I like the green computer cube. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was cool. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I didn't remind. I don't mind R- Roberta. I thought she was kind of funny. Yeah. 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 It, it's funny. Like just being a normal person being like thrown into this like crazy scenario. Right. Right. It's just a weird. It's again. It goes back to your point of like. So he doesn't know anything. Yeah. Then when he comes into the room, he thinks that she is the agent. Yeah, he wasn't briefed on who anybody is or anything. So So why does he think that she's the agent when he can describe who she is, that she's a female, but like doesn't know what the female looks like? Yeah. And then just does all this stuff. And then is like, oh, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I wasn't supposed to do any of that. You're not an alien. <laughs> I, I don't get, know. like, maybe to his point, like, nobody else should have been in there but the agents. True. Like, it is surprising. Begin with, you know? They would have had this girl be, like... So they just, like, hired a secretary? Like, why would they hire a secretary? Right. Weird. Maybe, maybe they. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they were trying to make their thing uh, look legitimate or something. I don't know. Maybe, even though it's like an apartment building, right? Yeah, I don't know if it's the scene. I can't quite find it, but I remember. Um, she says groovy. And I don't remember that. She said something where she was like, I think the cat comes out and says whatever, and she's like, groovy. Groovy. She says it, and I had this like moment in my mind where I was like, uh. but then I was like, well, wait a minute. This isn't this isn't a new show saying like they went back in time to the 60s and now everybody's like, hey man, groovy, like whatever. It's like, no, this is a 60s show. <laughs> showing young people and she she just like naturally says it like in a way you know what i mean like it's yeah that's like, true it's almost like, like it's, filming a kid now and he says like boomer or like whatever whatever yeah like it terminology. wasn't a script it wasn't a script right. thing it was a right they were like well you're gonna have young you're gonna talk like young people of that era out on the street, Kirk calls Scott again, and Scott tells Kirk that the source was about 30 meters higher than his present location. Thus, Kirk and Spock enter Seven's apartment building. 
The Beta 5 tells Seven that agents 201 and 347 were killed in an automobile accident 10 miles north of McKinley Rocket Base on Highway 949. Seven laments the uselessness of dying in such a manner and asks if the facts are verified. The computer does confirm this, noting that the description of the agents' bodies is accurate. So I when it's like, oh, they just died in a car accident, and there's no there's nothing basically to indicate like it was foul play, like another alien species trying to make this thing happen. Yeah. Like killed them. It's just literally like, no, they just died in a car accident. (laughs) And I was thinking McCoy says it like these are flawless human bodies. Mm -hmm. And then I thought that car accident must have been like, what were they doing to be like absolutely like mutilated? (laughs) (laughs) They were trying to get to the uh, space space launch. Yeah. Like, oh my. Well, it is, it is Florida. Say that. Yeah. <laughs> On the floor outside Seven's apartment, Scott tells Kirk which way to go, and they find the right apartment. Kirk rings the doorbell, and Seven has the computer deactivated. Roberta opens the door, but when Kirk asks about Seven, she says that she has no idea who he is talking about, that this is a government office, and that they should leave immediately. But Kirk will have none of it, demanding to know where Seven is. Roberta demands that Kirk leave, but he refuses, and she finally grabs the phone and calls for the police. Kirk and Roberta briefly struggle over the phone, and she asks Seven to come help her. Seven, meanwhile, has entered the transporter in his safe and disappeared. Spock discovers where Seven was, and Kirk goes in and has Spock restrain Roberta. She manages to pull Spock's cap off and is dumbstruck, at the sight of Spock's pointed Vulcan ears. Seven rematerializes inside the rocket base and observes the rocket, which is armed with the warhead. Number one, why ring the doorbell? <laughs> well, you have a, I don't know, you got to make sure. You know, you can't just... <laughs> so that, too. Uh-huh. <laughs> I like, I actually like Kirk going into the room and just kind of ignoring her and trying to go right into the other office. And then yeah. he he only turns back when she's like police. And he's like police. That's I don't want that to happen. And then remember last time Spock when the police. <laughs> yeah. And then you know, I don't know why he didn't just Vulcan neck pincher, but whatever. Well, so he's you don't want to use that too many times. True. Also, it's a lady, right? Um, but well, so I don't know if he cares about it. <laughs> that's true. But um. But the thing that made me laugh so much is Kirk walks into the room and he's like, where, where could seven be? And the camera's like panning with him and the door's and, like shutting. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, oh, maybe over here. And it's like, it's like, of course, the drinking glass wall that's shutting is probably where seven went. That's not like a common thing. That's <laughs> like their, their scanners can pick up on like what floor of the building that he's in. Yeah. Yeah, but then when they're in the room, they can't pick up on like the giant teleportation device that he has built in the wall. <laughs> no, no idea. Oh, what's this? I like later on when the police are knocking on the door and Spock and Kirk's like, "Come on, Spock, let's go!" And he's like, "I can't just if I let go <laughs> over, if I let go over, she's gonna." And they just kind of like 
throws her kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Oh, I really enjoyed that. That But before that scene happens. Yeah. uh, Gary seven materializes in the, in the liquid nitrogen doors. Yeah. Whatever it is. Just fully out in the daytime. With a cat. With a cat. Nobody. Yeah. Just walk because there's the one guy that like walked. walks by after, and you're like, okay, he wouldn't have seen, but then he walks out, yeah, to, and goes to like the hot dog stand. It's just all these people standing here watching. Yeah. It's like, so like one, nobody saw that. Like what? Like uh, you're right. Like why does nobody react to this guy with a cat walking around like that close to the thing? And two, and I totally get it. I don't uh, maybe trivia will tell us, but I don't remember which uh, rocket mission this is. It's one of the uh, probably one of the Apollos. So it's 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 footage of the real thing. Mm -hmm. But they then like you can tell that they just cut. And it's just like the back lot at like some NBC back lot thing like the hot dog thing is. Uh But the person didn't think about that the rocket shouldn't be that close to like a hot dog stand in like a building that has like liquid nitrogen or hydrogen or whatever was in it. Like the rocket well, should had, be really far away. They had to drive over to it. Right. But that shot that they have of him at like when he, after he comes out of the hot dog stand and it shows like where he is, it's like the rocket is like right in the background. Oh, I don't remember seeing it. Look how close the rocket is. Like it's pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> it would like blow everything up when they go to launch it. Even if they would have just made that like you could just barely see like the tip of the rocket. Right. But or you know what it, it is. Smaller in the background. It's because it's like they want you to know now as the audience that he is at the rocket launch site. Like you have to know that that's right. 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 And they only, and they probably the closest slash farthest thing that looked good on camera was the shot of the rocket, you know? Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we're at the halfway point, so go down to the comment section and write Doctor Who. That's what I want you to write. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. The seventh Doctor. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The Forgotten Doctor, yeah. Okay, Kirk finds Seven's map of McKinley Rocket Base. Roberta tells them she has already called the police to the office. When the police arrive, Spock tries to keep Roberta quiet, but she screams before he can. Kirk calls Scott whom he orders to perform a wide scan as they will be moving and be ready to beam them up. They run into the office, but Roberta runs to the door, admits the police, and points them into the office. They run in just as Kirk orders them beamed up, and the two police officers are beamed up with Kirk and Spock, all four disappearing before Roberta's eyes. Kirk and Spock jump off the transporter platform and Kirk immediately orders Scott to beam the policeman back down, which he does. The two policemen are returned to the office, leaving them dumbstruck at what they have seen and experienced and Roberta not knowing what to believe. 
at the rocket base. There are only 50 minutes until launch. Seven is approached by a security guard as he approaches launch control. The guard, Sergeant Lipton, has seven lower ices to the ground and requests identification, and seven produces his CIA ID. While the guard calls to verify, Isis distracts Lipton, allowing Seven to stun him with his servo, and he then takes the phone and tells the security identification office at the other end that everything is now okay. He then sits the stunned guard down and tells him to take a nap. Seven then makes his way to the gantry elevator by hiding in the trunk of the launch director's Cromwell's car. When the car arrives at the launch pad, he exits the trunk, hides in the elevator, reaches a gantry, removes an access panel with his servo, and begins to rewire the rocket. So yeah. the policeman thing was really weird. Yeah. But they just did that and then immediately like just send them back and they're just like, oh, well, who cares? And like nobody yeah. says anything. You would think Spock would be like, um... Like, let's stun them, have McCoy, like, erase their memory, and then beam them back down. Like, yeah. they're literally just like, nah, whatever, it doesn't matter. Yeah, who cares? Well, against, like, the prime... Uh... So many, so many things. This whole episode is so... It's off the rails. Off the rails. And here's the scene where he does the thing to the, to the guy, and then the guy's, like, smiling. And... Mm-hmm. and I also thought it was really funny that for this Gary Seven guy who seems to know nothing but also knows everything. Yeah. It's like, what a <laughs> fortuitous thing to know that that guy, that launch director guy, was going to drive. Yeah. That's from launch car. control. Specifically, that's his car that he's driving. <laughs> his name was rocket. conveniently on the dashboard, right? Like, this is my car. Because <laughs> even, even, in the next scene where like they show up to the actual rocket. Yeah. Everybody else that shows up is also driving the same vehicle because it's it's a government, it's NASA. They all have the same right. right. Why doesn't he just beam to the top of the rocket like where he's gonna be later? I don't understand. Right. Right. So the one thing I did like about this uh section was the footage. That they end up, Scotty ends up using, but also him getting in the elevator and it looks like he's actually going up the rocket and stuff. I like that. that, I really like too. Yeah, I thought that I thought that was cool. I I was trying to figure out like where they were filming that stuff because obviously they're not they're not at NASA filming that stuff. Yeah, they must have gotten permission to use the footage. So. Well, who who aired the launch? That's a good point. I don't know. Because they probably probably the same. I thought the Scotty oh, stuff true. got overplayed. Oh, at the very end, yes. Yes, it and did. He keeps, he yeah. keeps looking at the footage. He keeps looking at the... Yeah. He's looking at like, when... the bottom, and it's like, now, if he was going to sabotage the rocket, where would he, where <laughs> when would he, he be? Kept... At the when thruster? it cuts back to him, I was like, no, okay. No, no, no. Mm. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I liked his reaction when he finally is, when they, you could tell like off camera, they're like, okay, now this is when you actually see him up there. And he's like, oh. Security. <laughs> yeah. 
Scary. Scary. <laughs> 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 cool. That looks smooth. You could, but it was cool. You could tell it was. It fit the scene because it was like he was like, oh, I uh, which button? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually like that. I thought that was good. I also like that the guy is on like the either the stabilizer or like the fuel injector for the rocket, and this little steam is coming out. Like, and it's yeah. like when you look at those things on the reel, they're like it's just like flooding the oh, side yeah, of the rocket. You, like you couldn't see anything. You can't be side. anywhere near that thing when it's like T minus thirty. It's yeah. Oh man, just really funny. And he's like, and then it's like, mm, he has mm, like a little panel, a little, little panel. panel. He's just like, mm, this wire goes here, all <laughs> set. <laughs> no, anybody who knows rockets, that's not all that stuff's on the inside. <laughs> they're not putting no, sensitive. it's right on the. They're edge. not putting sensitive. <laughs> no, it's right on the it's computer right, controlling right on the... wires, right on like the the cusp of the. Rocket. Right against the wall where it's going to be <laughs> heating up against the atmosphere, especially right next to like whatever was going into the rocket, whether it was like fuel or like, but right next to it, no problems. And that just where all the steam and stuff was coming out, right? <laughs> <laughs> nah, that'll be fine. I want to see the clip on YouTube where it's like, like uh, mission control scientist watches assignment Earth, and then him be like, oh. "This doesn't, this doesn't make any sense." <laughs> This is ridiculous. <laughs> Meanwhile, yeah. Kirk, Spock, and Scott in the transporter room search for Seven at the launch site by reflecting their sensors off a low-orbiting weather satellite. Unable to find him, Kirk and Spock decide to beam down to the base to search for Seven the old-fashioned way. They materialize in front of the previously stunned guard as he awakens. Lipton takes them into custody and escorts them to the control room in the launch complex. They are briefly interrogated but all attention is focused at the launch preparations kirk and spock stand there unable to act meanwhile planning to quit again and telling the computer interface that she promises not to tell anyone about seven or anything she has seen roberta accidentally discovers that depressing a pen holder on the desk opens the sliding glass rack she then fiddles with the combination lock to the safe and succeeds in opening the safe slash alien tele transporter room at the same time using the ship sensors scott locates seven on the rocket gantry while he is manipulating wires on the rocket scott calls for security and then attempts to beam seven back aboard sensing the transporter beam seven gathers isis into his arms but at the same time lincoln's fiddling with the safe slash alien transporter controls pulls him back to the new york city office now I will give credit where credit's due. Him saying that they're yeah. bouncing it off of the weather satellite and they're getting clearly like helicopter footage of the rocket <laughs> yeah. is okay. I didn't. I can even get further, Captain. <laughs> I can even get close up. <laughs> Watch this. Yeah. <laughs> it's like slightly close. It's like, it's, well, the thing I like was it's clearly they had to be like, well, like the helicopter cameraman like zooms in, right? Yeah. So they're like, okay, we have this footage. And the cameraman zooms in. How do we explain it? Just have Scotty say, watch what oh, I look, can Captain, do. <laughs> I could even get closer. And if I could see him, I'll beam him right aboard, Captain, without a hesitation. <laughs> uh, that, 
to me that's fine i liked all that yeah. stuff it was it was fair <laughs> enough to be like i get it it's, it's stock footage that they have to just they're using and they have to like explain it like they're high school kids that have stock footage to something else you know i get i get it but the thing that was just like this this is i can't i my suspension of belief went right down to the toilet uh-huh she finds the thing open okay yeah. okay but then she's like oh a safe let me just crack this safe open and i'm like yeah because it totally acts like a real safe like why would it why wouldn't it be alien technology? Yeah. She cracks that thing open. Then the scene happens with Scotty where, uh, like you said, it's just like he zooms into the one part of the rocket and you don't see anything. There's nothing. And then he's like, here it is. And then, (laughs) and then it's just clearly the shot of him. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the state. It's like the, the set, (laughs) the set, right. Footage where he's on the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Then he can somehow tell that he's going to be transported. Yeah. Which is like, how do you know that? How do you know? Because the cat knew. To me, (laughs) with the original transporter thing, when he went to the Enterprise, he should have known then. Like he was getting intercepted. No. (laughs) He was flying through space. He had no idea. And then when and then also Kirk and Spock beaming down and that guy like I'm magically just waking back up right as they beam oh, down. Immediately, yeah. And then immediately he's just up. like, hey, follow me. And they're like, they sort of interrogate them, but not really. But because but they don't because the guards are just so enthralled with the uh-huh. rocket launch. And I'm like, yeah. gotta tell you, if you worked at McKinley Rocket Base and some weirdos walked down the thing, you wouldn't be like, Well, hold on, weirdos. I want to see this rocket launch. They'd be like, this is and the 4,000th rocket I've seen. Like, yeah, you're a security threat. I will. You are my full attention. I also don't think they would. Have, I don't think they would bring two suspicious like people into control. mission control. No. Yeah. No, we, we don't yeah. know anything about them. We didn't really interrogate them, but you stand right here next to all the. Yeah, you come equipment. right in here. We're doing this rocket stuff. <laughs> but, but also uh, like um Kirk and Spock could not have just like stunned the security no. guy like when he was like hey you Absolutely you come not. with me yeah if that man was so like, distracted by a cat touching his shoes and he could use his little servo thing like Kirk and yeah. Spock easily could have just been like oh okay sure and then when he turned around Spock just got him you know Happens all the time. Yeah, yeah, but it leads to that really good scene where, mm, tell me, Scotty calls on the on the communicator. Oh, and the police officer like immediately knows like, oh, this is the phone. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Hello, come Hello. in. Yeah, this is Officer Tra- Daniels. Hello, <laughs> and Spock's like, oh, actually, it's this switch right here. Let me show you. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> <laughs> my neck it's just 60s television it's okay it's all right in the launch facility kirk and spock watch helplessly as the countdown progresses security officers inspect kirk's and spock's phasers and communicator the security supervisor tells kirk that 
only the slightest possible charges will be brought against them if they explain why they are here and what they are doing. Kirk can only stand silently and watch as the rocket launches up toward space. Captain's Log Supplemental Spock and I are in custody. Even if we'd talk, they wouldn't believe us. We're powerless to stop Mr. Seven or prevent the launch, or even be certain if we should. I have never felt so helpless. <laughs> I was so funny. I, I have never felt more confused. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Because again, it goes back to this thing. They're like, okay, we don't know who these guys are. We don't know why they're here. They have this weird stuff on them that we don't know what it is. Yeah. But let's bring them into this part of the room. Let's it's put fun. these weird devices all together right here on top of this table. I'm sure they're not like bombs or anything crazy. No. no. It's just squirt guns and walkie talkies. <laughs> <laughs> I like how this Spock has his fisherman hat on and he sees oh, yeah. so he's got his Oh yeah. Oh. It's beautiful. All right. It's Caleb's favorite time. Trivia. Oh, not again. All right, now you're overacting. So the episode was designed partly as a pilot for a new series featuring Gary Seven and his mission. Star Trek was teetering... Star Trek was teetering on the brink of cancellation late in its second oh. year. And Roddenberry hoped to get a new show going for the fall season. The first draft pilot script, which was written in November 14th, 1966, had no mention of Star Trek or its characters. So that's what this is. They took the season two finale yeah. of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And made it a pilot with their characters yeah. for a new series. Uh-huh. Yeah, there you go. Oh my god, that hurts, doesn't it? Gary Seven captured the hearts <laughs> of everybody <laughs> that day, of no one, because it nobody. failed. Nobody picked nobody. it up. Nobody. Yeah, so just making the season two finale like really good. To actually have the studio request more seasons. Right. They're like, hey, why don't we push this thing? And yeah. everyone was like, hey, so whatever this was, no more. And they're like, <laughs> yeah. wow. That was. But you don't want to see what Gary Seven has to do to like keep the planet safe all this time? Yeah. No. He just goes around to different planets <laughs> and he, he <laughs> fixes it. Like, that's that's cool. You get it. It's this. It's this new concept. He's an alien, and he goes around through time. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's kind of yeah. like Doctor Who, and that's no, 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 no idea what you're talking about. He goes through time. <laughs> he has his little metal, um, like pen in his pocket, <laughs> and he can do like all sorts of cool stuff. He has a companion. Um, you know, he has a friend. <laughs> that goes with <laughs> he has this um yeah, it's like he a... has this bo- uh phone boot no uh 
um, uh, a vault, a vault. Oh, safe, a giant safe. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually, you know, what's funny is it's bigger on the outside. And it's normal size on the inside. Insane. Oh, <laughs> uh, yep, yep. <laughs> that's really that's really funny. Yep. Oh my god! Yes, yeah. Exterminate! I knew I knew you would enjoy <laughs> learning that it was a fa- a failed pilot that they showed oh, during Star Trek. I'm yeah. glad I I just learned that now and not before I watched it because no. Uh, no, you have to know it afterwards. Uh, according Ooh. to according to the Star Trek Copendium, the first draft script dated December twentieth, nineteen sixty seven, had the Enterprise bridge crew watching an episode of Bonanza on the view screen. Oh, cool! Little John was up to that week. Yeah, right. Probably getting into a fight. A new effect is used for the transporter as Seven is beamed aboard for the first time. Slow motion flames can be seen behind the opaque black wall of the chamber. This may be due to the Enterprise's unintentional interception of Seven's unusually powerful transporter beam. Interesting. Yep. The rocket storage building at the rocket base were studio buildings on the Paramount lot. With NASA yeah. footage of Apollo rockets matted in the in above them, this is the third and last episode utilizing Paramount office building exteriors for location filming. After Bread and Circuses, which is an episode we didn't watch, and Patterns of Force, which we didn't watch, launch director Cromwell's car matches the car seen in one of the stock footage sequences. NASA shot all their footage using the anamorphic format, hence all the rocket launch stock footage in this episode is cropped from the 2.351 aspect ratio to television's conventional 1.331. The rocket stock footage in this episode is actually of three Saturn V's. Footage of the rocket on the ground is a combination of the SA-500F test vehicle the only Saturn V to feature USA markings on the third stage, and Apollo 6, the only Saturn V launched with a white service module. Footage of the rocket launching is of Apollo 4. Cool. Well, I mean, I like that stuff. Yeah, oh yeah. I liked all the NASA stuff, honestly. So here's an unfortunate thing, but I, you know, it's really really good. Got to read it. This is the don't. only episode. Mm. No, don't have to. <laughs> I have to. This is the only no, episode of the second season to have Gene Roddenberry credited as producer instead of executive producer. The first time he had received such a credit since the first season. Roddenberry wanted to be very hands-on for this episode, as he hoped to turn it into a spin-off series. He wrote, rewrote Art Wallace's script. And was heavily involved in production, including sets, props, casting of actors, and even the costume of Terry Garr. He insisted on shortening her miniskirt to be more revealing, much to the anger of the costume designer, William Ware Thies. So Terry Garr is Roberta Lincoln. Here's Here's the bad part. Garr had a very unpleasant time filming this episode. 
perhaps stemming from Jean Roddenberry's involvement in decisions regarding her costume, specifically the lengths of her skirt. The hem was taken up so much it became very distorted. In interviews since, she has refused to talk about Star Trek in any way. Oh, wow. She was really... I liked her in the episode. Me too, yeah. Yeah. But I think Gene Roddenberry was kind of... I think just no way around. I think he was kind of sleazy to her. What a pig. Yep. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's a really weird um, like decision. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, she's in like a whole bunch of stuff. She's in like the original 1979 Black Stallion movie. She's in Miss. I think she's the she's the mom in the Mister Mom Michael Keaton movie. Oh, she's in Dumb and Dumber. I think she's really. Why? I think she's the wife or the mom of um. So Samson Swanson, uh, <laughs> Samsonite. <laughs> I think she's uh, her that lady's mom. That is funny. Yeah, she also appears like on other TV shows like Mash, nineteen sixty six Batman, uh, the Andy Griffith Show, Bob Newhart Show, stuff like that. Yeah, so she's oh, a famous, cool. famous actress. Yeah. Robert Lansing, who played Gary Seven, is the only Star Trek original series guest star whose credit appears after the opening credits instead of during the end credits, complete with his character name. The fact that the episode has to serve as a pilot for a proposed spinoff series explains the unique credits. So you'll like this. Lansing was married to Emily McLaughlin, who married Jeffrey Hunter after she and Lansing divorced. And Jeffrey Hunter is the original Pike. Sweet. Yeah, nice. Cool. Nice. So, you know what's crazy? Not to bring it up. Yeah. But in compared to like today's time period, mm-hmm. her like skirt is like so not like crazy short. Uh, no. Because like you were talking about, it and I don't even remember. Right. Like while you were saying that, I was like, I don't really remember. I don't either. It's, it's really, it's, I mean, it is, but it, it is, for, it, it is for the 60s for sure. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that sucks, though. That sucks that, like, she doesn't even want to talk about Star Trek. Yeah. Because of that. Yeah. Especially too. Lame. She, prob- she probably was being, uh, casted to be a part of the new series so like um, Roddenberry was very probably like yeah. very particular about her look I wonder how old she was let me go back to when she was born okay. so she was 24 mm. probably actually yeah. more like 23 22 going on yeah yeah was uh, the computer in this episode voiced by Roddenberry's wife no, I don't think so. Barbara Babcock. That's who played the, the voice of the computer. She also, I think, was the cat. She was the voice of the cat. Oh. Yeah, I knew. I knew that. Did she also play the cat? I don't think so. I don't think what? so. What? We haven't even I, gotten there. I, I, what we haven't is gotten up? There. Yeah, what is with that? So, 
here is the last little bits that you'll like. Uh, let me save that for last because that's like the best. Uh, this episode takes place entirely in 1968 with no scenes in the 23rd century, along with Enterprise's episode of Stormfront, which takes place in 1944. This is the this is one of only two Star Trek episodes based entirely in the 20th century. Furthermore, both episodes take place mostly in and around New York City. Cool. Pretty cool. Okay. Here's the cool, really cool part. This episode was first aired in March 29th, 1968. Six days later, on April 4th, 1968, there was indeed an important assassination. That of Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, However, the coincidence goes beyond this. Kirk says that that the same day as the assassination that the U.S. was launching an orbital nuclear warhead platform. The King assassination was the same day as the launch of the unmanned Apollo 6 Saturn V rocket. The same Saturn V, amazingly enough, also suffered a serious mishap and went off course. The details of the mishap with the Saturn V on April 4th differ greatly in detail from the events of the Simon Earth. However, Kirk comments at the end of the episode that the real events were never generally revealed at the time. It makes sense, therefore, to assume within the context of Star Trek's fictional history that there was a massive cover-up about the Apollo 6 mishap and that a false cover story was put out to hide the truth Uh, that they were launching a nuclear weapon into orbit. This episode uses footage of the Apollo 4 Saturn V, the only previous test of that rocket. Chronologically, the closest candidate to Spock's other prediction of a government coup in Asia would be the July 17th military coup in Iraq that brought Saddam Hussein to power. Wow. Pretty, it's, it's, it's it's like weirdly kind of creepy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not to make not to make the assassination of Mr. King like like weird Star Trek stuff, but it's just like it's really strange how close they were to saying all of that. <laughs> yeah, right. It's pretty weird. Well, that's what the the new show was going to be. I mean, yeah. Mr. Seven was going to go around and he was going to stop like Martin Luther King's assassination. <laughs> he was going to take out yeah. Saddam Hussein. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's crazy. It is looking back. It's a funny time period for them to be like, Hey, so like if all this stuff didn't happen, then basically like Star Trek would like exist. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, you're probably not wrong. The the race thing is a very big thing in for Star Trek that like Ohura being on the the show was like huge. To the yeah. point where Dr. King told Nichelle Nichols to like stay on the show because she wanted to leave. Oh, really? And he was like, you can't, you can't, like, please don't leave the show because, like, what you're doing for the black community is, like, amazing. So, like, stay. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. It is pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's just, it's it's one of those weird 
it's like the Simpsons, right? Where they're like this thing, and then the Simpsons yeah, get it right. right. Yeah, yeah. It happens. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. being, you know, standing up for like black rights and stuff is is you know, yeah, very hard. But at the same time, it's like, ah, eh, well, women don't matter. They can't vote, so who cares? Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, because in a way, it's like, well, yeah, there's a black woman on the bridge, but also like, yeah, eh, she doesn't really do anything. So. <laughs> yeah, he's like, hey, look, I'm not trying to fix all of this stuff at once. <laughs> okay, like let's... racism is bad, but sexism. Yeah, it's fine. That's fine. <laughs> and it's not resolved until like the last five years of New yeah. Track. There's still so much sexism in yeah like next gen and so many other the star trek stuff well you're also coming from a, a time period of history too where it's like women weren't in the military women right were right. never aboard like ships it was bad yeah. luck to have a woman aboard you know yeah a sea vessel totally totally so yeah it would be kind of jarring in the time period to like watch you know Oh like, yeah. Well, there's a there's like women on board and they're doing all this stuff. Yeah. And it's still... not making sandwiches. What's wrong with this Gene <laughs> Roddenberry <happening>? guy? <laughs> <laughs> what is this guy crazy? <laughs> it's one of the few things I do like about later Star Trek that they put all they put men and women in the same uniforms. Instead of being like the men wear shirts and nice yeah, pants, cool. and the, but it's like the ladies have to wear these really, really short mini skirts. Yes. <laughs> so, all right. In the office, Seven is initially angry at Roberta for interfering, but he then calms down when he realizes that what she had done likely kept him from being transported back to the Enterprise and again taken prisoner. He then goes over and begins to work at the Beta 5 computer. He inquires whether he had done enough to take control of the rocket, and the Beta 5 confirms that he had. Seven uses the Beta 5 exceiver controls to cause the third stage of the American rocket to malfunction and veer off course. He also arms the warhead, and Roberta, who had become very suspicious of Seven, hits him on the head with a small jewelry box. For now, she realizes that what he has been doing is beyond the CIA's capabilities. She grabs Seven's servo and tells him to stay where he is. Seven begs Roberta to let him finish what he has started. Otherwise, when the rocket warhead detonates somewhere in six minutes, it will start World War Three. So finally, he gives like actual <laughs> evidence to what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I also like that she knows how the servo thing works, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, like, not really, but also, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. I like when she hits him in the head. Oh. From the science station on the bridge, check off on Sulu, see the warhead arm, and call Scott in the transporter room to inform him of what has happened. Sulu tells Scott that the computers indicate an impact somewhere in the heart of the Eurasian landmass. Uhura, listening in to broadcasts from her station in multiple Earth languages, reports that she is receiving military alerts from, from the major powers. Scott decides that he will have to risk calling Kirk and tells Uhura to open a channel to his communicator. At the launch control, the mission planners note the malfunction in the rocket and try to override it 
and get it back on course. When the warhead arms itself, the scientists are confused as to how it could have done so on its own. They prepare to send a self-destruct signal to prevent the H-bomb from otherwise detonating on an unsuspecting population somewhere. Yeah, it literally talks about in the trivia thing I didn't read that it was like apparently this is one of the episodes where like the temp uh, the temporal prime directive and and uh, hasn't been put in place and it's like pretty sure it has. <laughs> yeah. Kirk taking advantage of this distraction steps over and tries to activate his communicator, but Lipton catches him and sends him back to his corner. Just then Scott attempts to contact Kirk for instructions. When the guard, when the communicator beeps and the rocket base guard picks it up and tries to talk to Scott, Spock steps over under the guise of showing Lipton how to use it and uses his nerve pinch to render him unconscious again. Kirk and Scott beam them directly to Seven's office. Unfortunately for the scientists, the self-destruct signal does not work. The lead flight controller picks up a red phone to make a call to the president. Back in Seven's apartment, Seven tries to tell Roberta the truth about what has been happening and that truly advanced civilizations would neither take strange forms nor visit for Earth in force, explaining that the best option is to bring humans to their planet and train them for generations until they are needed on Earth. Roberta tells him that she wants to believe him, for she knows that her world needs help. This explains the seemingly insane conduct of some of the people of her generation of whom she points out, we wonder if we're going to be alive when we're 30. I always like when people get bulk and neck pinched in this show mm-hmm. because it's not like an established thing. Like as Trek goes on, like it's like you understand like what, what you're supposed to do. So all these actors who are just like, okay, he's going to put his hand on your shoulder and he's like paralyzing you. You're like, oh, okay. So <laughs> then when he goes to do it, the guy's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. But it doesn't even look like uh, Leonard Nimoy is like compressing him. It just looks like he puts his hand on his shoulder and he's just like, no, oh. he totally is not. Right. So just as Seven tries to run back to the computer, Kirk and Spock enter the apartment again. Kirk asks Spock if he can detonate the warhead using the computer, to which Spock replies that he can attempt it. Seven says that he wants the warhead detonated too but that he will have to do it and at at least a hundred miles above the ground so that it will frighten the people of earth out of the arms race. At that moment, Scott calls Kirk telling him that the enterprise's monitors show all major powers on full missile alert and a retail and a retaliatory strike is ordered upon warhead impact. Spock says that without more time, he can only estimate and, Seven angrily asks Kirk to allow him to do his job. Kirk insists that he still does not know what Seven's job is. I don't think Seven does either. And that Mm -hmm. for all he and Spock know, Seven may set the controls so that the warhead may not even be detonated. Then Roberta points the servo at Kirk and demands that he leave Seven alone. Seven quickly grabs it from her hand and tells her that the servo was set to kill. He deactivates it and then hands it over to Kirk. Kirk tells Spock, if he cannot detonate the warhead, they will both have to trust Seven. Spock tells Kirk that in the absence of facts, there is no logical decision and that he will have to rely on his human intuition to guide him. After a brief moment, Kirk 
tells Seven, go. Seven runs over to the Beta 5 and begins working the controls, activating a visual of low Earth orbit and having the computer count down the miles by tens. Finally, at 104 miles, Seven manages to detonate the warhead. The thing I didn't understand, besides it being stupid, that Kirk being like, I don't know if I can trust you because I don't know what you're doing. It's like, I don't think Seven knows what he's doing. But the thing, too, is like, why does Roberta go from like, I don't trust you, Mr. Seven Man, to having these other two mm-hmm. guys come in to do something at the computer, and then she's like, "Well, hey, don't be mean. Don't don't be mean to Seven. Like, yeah, I trust him completely. Right. <laughs> like, what you do? That's interesting because you just hit him yeah. over the head with a cigar box or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Later in the day, Seven is dictating the last bit of his report into the typewriter, and in spite of the accidental interference with history by the Earth ship from the future, the mission was completed. Spock then corrects Seven and tells him that by all appearances they did not interfere, but that rather that the Enterprise was simply part of what was supposed to happen on this day in 1968. Kirk says that their record tapes show that while it was never generally revealed, a malfunctioning suborbital warhead was exploded exactly 104 miles above the Earth. Spock adds that, furthermore, it caused the nuclear powers to reassess the risks of a nuclear orbiting platform. That everything turned out just how it was supposed to leaves Seven feeling relieved. For a moment, Roberta looks over at Isis and sees a rather gorgeous woman. She steps over to Seven and asks if he will explain who that is. Seven says that it is simply his cat. When Roberta looks back, Isis is a cat again. Seven then asks Kirk what else their record tapes show, but Kirk says they cannot in turn reveal all they know. Spock does say that it would be safe to say that Seven and Roberta have some interesting experiences ahead of them, and Kirk agrees with that assessment. Kirk calls to be beamed up by Scotty. Spock tells Seven to live long and prosper, and Kirk says that the same goes for Roberta. They beam back aboard, and the Enterprise leaves orbit to go back to its proper time. <laughs> <laughs> there yeah. is so much weird stuff in the end of this episode. The whole time, like we've been talking about, they have no idea what no. anything is. And now all of a sudden, they finally like look up in the history book, and they say, oh, you know what's crazy is uh, on this day there was the ro- that rocket like very famously it blew up 104 miles from from yeah. earth like that's yeah. just a written history thing like that's that's <sighs> happened we knew that but we didn't know that yeah and then he's he's writing up his report you know and yeah. you're like okay and then it beams out and you know, it, the camera pans away and and everybody's just standing there watching him like do his yeah. report and it's like <laughs> yeah. okay yeah, yeah. The other thing that made me laugh, too, was I was thinking Starfleet sends him back. So is it like as people from this advanced, the people of Gary seven people like did they uh-huh. send other agents to twenty two sixty eight so that they would make sure that the Enterprise went back in time to nineteen sixty eight so that this happened. 
But here's the thing I that know. you're really, you're really going to enjoy <laughs> is that se- season two of Star Trek Picard. Oh no! They go back to like 2022 or something. I forget what year they go to, but they go back to like our general time period, mm-hmm. and they meet another agent, and they talk about Gary Seven. Oh, cool! Yeah, that'd be a cool payoff. Yeah, it's really, it's really, really <laughs> yeah. cool. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's what all the fans are saying. Like of all the things to call back to. to yeah, of all series, the things, right? They're like definitely yeah. call back to Gary Seven. Gary Seven, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's that's really that's really something. It, and um, really excellent. You know what you told me about this being like the pilot for the show. Yeah, it makes so much more sense now. Oh yeah, it makes so much more sense now. Like that that's the case because like this this ending is very much like oh I'm sure you two are gonna get up to some real mm-hmm. wacky adventures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would think that you two are gonna get into some real pickles. <laughs> and you might want to <laughs> stay tuned for their many adventures. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it will be very fun. Well yep. it won't that, be no. You'll never see it again. <laughs> <laughs> so that Never is again. the season two finale of Star Trek the original series Woo. and before we conclude our podcast we're going to go do the thing that you've been waiting since we started to talk about this episode oh, what yeah. does Caleb think Caleb So, Caleb, who gets the Erica Ortegas Award for being most unlikable? Gary. Gary. Gary 7. Gary 7 was friends with Gary 8. Yeah. Because 7, 8, 9. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So So they're also implying that there is six other Garys. Or that the man's last name is Seven. No. Absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> I, I, don't refuse that. That. I don't accept that <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> okay, who gets the Elizabeth Cutler Award for being most forgettable? I'm going to say the cops. Those two cops that beamed aboard and then beamed <laughs> off board. I love it. Oh, They're I super forgettable. The, their whole life now is just in shambles. They'll never, they'll never cope yeah. with... Oh, that's so good. Never that's cope so, with so anything good. that happened to him. Oh, man, that's hilarious. I love it so much. Because <laughs> that whole scene didn't even need to happen. No. Yeah. No. It, they don't, and it they resulted need, in nothing. They didn't need to do a wide, a widespread beam. They could have literally just beamed yeah. out Spock. Because yeah. also they weren't moving. He's like, and that would have been dude. just as bad to have them see that happen in front of them, but it, it's a lot more to like <laughs> right. dematerialize. <laughs> like on a weird... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 100%. So who gets the Trip Tucker Award for being the MVP? Uh, you know what? When in doubt, Scotty out. Yeah. <laughs> Scotty's the MVP of the episode. Yeah. Yeah, I mean he he looked at every inch of that shuttle on yep. the screen. 
until he found that idiot found laying him. on top of the beam, you know? He kept uh, he kept the transporter lock originally and made sure that the thing didn't destroy the Enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of good things. What gets the Shran Award as being the best action sequence? Probably one of the nerve pinches or something. Ooh. You like uh you like the, the guy getting nerve pinched in Mission Control? Yeah. Alright. We'll take it. What gets the NX award for be for some sweet ship stuff? Probably the computer monitor. Yes, yes. So close. So close. It is the computer, but ah, I wasn't thinking the monitor, but I'll take it. Mm. I thought you were going to say the computer slides out of the wall. No, no. I thought you were going to say the little green cube on the desk. Oh, I do like the green cube thing. I forgot about that. Uh, I like when he says uh, computer and the whole thing comes like out of the wall. And then like, oh, like six inches away from his face, like doesn't hit him. Yeah. And also like the wall that it comes out of is supposed to be like the other side of like the secretary office. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And that wall is, you know, not. No, it's a magic wall. It's bigger on the outside than it is on the inside. What is the what is the footage that they show of like the computer screen too? Like even in um the uh, other one, what was it called? The five, the, the ultimate computer, yeah, the M five, the M five compute. This is the, the beta five, beta five, not M five. <laughs> yeah, it's always five. What the frick? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, the 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 screen that they show is like this weird wavy, oh yeah, pattern thing, and it's like that's yeah. what they use for the computer all the time. Yeah, it's very interesting. <laughs> Computing. What gets the Porthos Award for being the cheesiest thing of the episode? It's got to be the cat. Everything to do with the cat. Is it the is it the cat turning into a woman? It's it's everything. Yeah, it's everything. <laughs> turning into the woman was probably like the cheesiest part to me. It was like so out of nowhere. Yeah. And then for him to just be like, <laughs> "Oh, that's just my cat." I wouldn't worry about it. It's like, because she was. I'm kind of worried about it now. The true form of the cat. Yeah. Because remember, it was jealous earlier. Jealous. (laughs) There's a lot of cat stuff in this episode where it's really like too much. The thing I can't wait for is when I find a picture of Isis, the cat. Yeah. And then put the picture of Porthos next. (laughs) It's going to look silly. (laughs) All right. And finally, what gets the Enterprise Award for being the best scene of the episode? I'm gonna, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna be that guy. I'm gonna say the best scene of the episode was the intro, Ooh. like the actual title screen, not the anything else. The actual uh, title screen. All right, I'll take it. Hey. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Yeah. I, I really, I really can't. That's fine. I mean, I've already used everything that I enjoyed. You know, the Scotty stuff, the yeah, the nerve pinch stuff. Yeah, 
totally. I was just hoping Kirk was going to talk this computer into blowing itself up too, but that didn't happen. No, can't. Yeah, I. I don't know if I could pick one. The only thing I can maybe suggest is the scene where Kirk and Spock are at the table and like Chekhov and Uhura or um, Scotty are like all telling him about what's happening. Like in that early part where he's looking at the the monitor and yeah. we see the monitor too. That's like the only thing I could think of that would be like sort of okay. But you've made your final decision. So yeah. No the other thing <laughs> that I am remembering is I like when Kirk yells at people. And he kind of does that in this episode, too. Remember where they're like, well, you know, he could be good or he could be bad. And he's like, yeah, I don't I need I don't I need definites. I need proof. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All you're doing is, is he... just saying more of the same. <laughs> it's like, is he good? Or is he bad? I I don't know. <laughs> I guess Kirk, like you, I would also like you guys to get to the friggin' point of the episode. <laughs> yeah, really. I know. Gosh. Well, that is what Caleb thought of the episode. Thanks for that award ceremony, Caleb. He loves doing it so much. So go down to the comment section and write what you thought of the episode. Do you love Assignment Earth? Are you sad that they didn't make another television series from this and we have more Star Trek content? Yeah, I am. <laughs> or do you hate it? Let us know down below. Next week, do not look for a retrek review. Next week, <laughs> we go on a small little break, but there will be an episode. We will be doing what Caleb thought of the entire season two of yeah the original series. Of the episodes that we watched, obviously not the entire thing, just the episodes that we watched. So that'll be out uh, the following week. And then after that, you can look for our start of season three. Caleb and I discussed it here the other day. Uh, I think we're going to do a, like a shorter format. Uh, we're not going to get rid of all of the stuff that you guys, I think, like, like trivia and uh, what does Caleb think with the trophies and some other things. Um, but we are going to probably excise, trim the fat a little bit and not read paragraphs upon paragraphs upon paragraphs of um, what Memory Alpha has put out. Uh, not because we don't like what is written there, but because it takes a long time and we think we can trim down the podcast to be a lot more concise and have our thoughts be more focused to just the stuff that we want to talk about rather than getting to like reading, you know, eight paragraphs worth of material and then being like, yeah, that was a weird scene and then move on to the next eight paragraphs. So yeah, that will be our new format going forward and it'll start with season three. And for all you waiting to know what is going to be that episode, uh, we will still continue in production order and not release date order and we're still going to skip around. It's not really my favorite and i don't think it's many of other people's favorites but that's okay the episode that we're going to watch when we come back for season three is entitled the enterprise incident that's the first episode we're going to watch so if you like this episode like it if you dislike it dislike it share it with all your friends and family and trek enthusiasts subscribe so you don't miss an episode and ring that bell for notifications so that 
uh, you don't miss when this episode comes out or other things on the channel like Star Trek History or the RPG, which just had an ep- which just had an episode come out a few days ago. And also, YouTube just like gave me context for when my viewers watch the videos. So the times are going to change. The days are going to stay the same, but the times are going to change to match up with uh, when viewers watch. So cool. the retrack review will actually be about five hours early. So <laughs> keeping the cool. days the same, just changing the times. But as always, you can go over to Caleb's channel. And Caleb put out a cool video of the Trident scanner uh, mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago. And I think probably just a couple days ago, he can fill you in what he put out, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, keeping along the same theme of the Trident scanner, I made the Sonic Disruptor. And that is out. Yeah. It's pretty cool. He doesn't always make Star Trek stuff, but he's been kind of on a Star Trek kick yeah. since he's been watching it with us. So there's a lot of cool stuff up there on his channel. Like I've done a watch. lot more Star Trek stuff in the past month, <laughs> yeah. like months. Like six months, yeah. Totally. Yeah, it's been fun. The thing I always like about it is uh, like 90% of what he makes on the channel Star Trek related is you can make it your own. Like, not everything he makes is 3D printed. A lot of it's made out of foam. So it's like, you can do it too. Yep. All right, everybody. Thanks for watching. We appreciate it. We'll see you next week uh, for What Does Caleb Think? And then two weeks later, we'll be in season three. Thanks for sticking around and probably a, a weird episode, but that's okay because that's 60s Star Trek. <laughs> There'll be All more. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Beta 5 computer. I don't know if you know how to do this, but end program. I am very well aware of end program protocol. (laughs) (laughs) See you guys. Check for any messages. Yes, there is a message here. Uh, Let's see. From Captain... To all crew, please do the outro of the... Oh, okay, yes. Take time on my busy doctor schedule here to record a couple things. Oh, hello. Dr. Stephen House, Chief Medical Officer aboard the USS Drake. Just wanted to record a few reminders for you guys. So, here we go. The Retrack Review is a Daystrom Holodeck podcast. It's produced in association with the Plastic Underground Props, hosted by Caleb Stoddard and Will Wilbur, edited by Will Wilbur. Our outro song is by Kaylee Joy Rookledge. Our theme song is by Samo Studios. And our outro song is by Tommy T. The title card art was created by Caleb Stoddard. Trophy art was created by Adrian Wilbur from Love by the Letters. The synopsis and written plot provided by memoryalpha.fandom.com. Star Trek is created by Gene Roddenberry, and all official clips and pictures are owned by Paramount Pictures. You can follow us at The Plastic Underground Props and The Daystrom Holodeck on Instagram and YouTube. So, 
that is it. That is all I had to say. And uh, I'll work. Lizesh, don't touch that. <laughs>